Now it's True Wealth presented by Little John Financial Services. Here is David Littlejohn with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang. Hey, it is that time, and it's your favorite Tuesday you've had all week, and it's the best show you've heard all day. We are thrilled to have you tuning in to the True Wealth Radio Show. I am your host, David Littlejohn, and I am not even going to waste time with an intro or a monologue today because I am so excited to introduce uh, a special guest today on the radio program. So, and I want to make sure I've, but so. We'll make sure we've got him here, but this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin is joining us today. This is a huge honor for me. So can you can you hear me, Rabbi? Loud and clear, David. Good to be with you. Oh, well, it is a pleasure. And I have to tell you, just for the benefit of our listeners, I had the opportunity, I was introduced to a book that you authored, Thou Shalt Prosper, and it I don't want to oversell it because this can, you know, people will start to go, oh, come on, stop gushing, right? But <laughs> some really, really impactful stuff. And as a as a financial advisor and professional for now, uh, 21 years going into my 22nd, and there were still things that I took away from your book that were just revelatory and completely altered my perspective on wealth, prosperity, and how to navigate the financial system. It was really great stuff. And I just want to personally say thank you for authoring the book. Oh, you're, you're most welcome. And uh, I mean, I've obviously greatly enjoyed the uh, tremendous reception it received. And uh, I love uh, people coming up to me, to be honest, um, in airports around the world. And or I mean, somebody sat next to me on the plane the other day and said, you know, are you Rabbi Daniel Lappin? And I said, uh, yeah, why? Why do you ask? And he he reached into his briefcase and pulled out the book. You right. know, well, you wrote Thou Shalt Prosper. So, I mean, I love that because it is really uh, it's transforming the financial destiny of a lot of people. And that's what I want to do. Well, it's a mission for this program as well, uh, just to give you a little backdrop, because uh, just for the benefit of our listeners, again, we've not met and we've not scripted a thing that we're going to speak about today. So this is completely free verse. Uh, I, I mean, the, the, the show will really be a tribute to our wit and spontaneity and just general IQ and virility. <laughs> well, that I trust you'll carry the team. <laughs> so uh, when... I was initially introduced to this. Now, we do have a mutual acquaintance, uh, I'm, so I'm not name-dropping for the sake of, uh, but uh, another author out there by the name of Aaron Walker, fantastic man. Uh, and Great guy. Uh, yep, a friend of mine, and really, uh, so he was the one that put us in touch, but Aaron was also the one that initially, and I have to say it's Aaron, right, because Aaron's in Tennessee, and yeah, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so he was the one that really suggested I read your book. And it, the backdrop started simply with the idea that uh, I'm – I work in finance and talking about the mission of teaching. In this program, we talk about all the time, true wealth is, you know, money's how you trade your time, true wealth are the memories and relationships that matter. And at its heart and core, what we do on this program is we teach. And he introduced me to your book. I actually listened to it, right? So I've, I, now I'm wanting, I want to read it as well because it's just another way to consume the data. But I had a long... Well, the nice thing about reading is you can mark it up. Right. 
Absolutely. That's if you buy the book, don't borrow it. I don't like people who borrow it. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I I, uh, I imagine now I'm going to end up reading them all. So I, I'll, <laughs> I'll be a great proofreader for you. Thank you. <laughs> so can I share one piece of the book that made an impact on me so much so that I continue to share it? And I would love it if this could just be a leaping off point for us. Yeah, sure. It, it was the parable... You talked about the two people in the desert that are two people prepare for a journey across the desert. And one of them has prepared with enough water to make it all the way to the cross. And the other has not. And you reach the halfway point or so. And it's the point of no return. And the other realizes they do not have enough water to make it. And you do not have enough water on your own to share in such a way that you both make it. So what do you do? So first, I'm sort of asking that question back to you for our listeners is, how do you address this situation? Because I have watched people squirm and squirm over this one. And I just love the way you addressed it in the book. Uh, Well, yeah, look, um, a lot of people, let me put it this way, there's a lot of confusion about the word morality. And, um, and, and people use that word, you know, well, it's not moral, or it is moral, or it's immoral, or it's not immoral. <clears throat> but um, here's the general rule, and that is that the word moral is utterly meaningless unless you also add according to a specific moral system. So there are moral systems in the world that say that for a certain end, it's okay to cut the throats of stewardesses on airliners. There is a moral system <laughs> yeah, like that. I know it. I, I don't agree with it, <laughs> but I suppose I there are like those it. that can rationalize it. I don't agree it. with it. It's not my moral system, but it is somebody's. Fair enough. And, um, and so one has to specify what's moral or, or what's uh, immoral. And... Uh, and, and you have to say according to what system, because there obviously is not any universally accepted system of morality. And, and so, um, you know, I mean, I, I remember, this is going back many, many years, but in, in, in your neck of the wood, right, in, in, in the area of you, Roseburg, right? I am, yes. Yeah, so in that area, there was a time where they said that it was immoral to uh, harvest timber because it imperiled a bird called the spotted owl. (laughs) Oh, you know right where to go to kick the dog on this one, don't you? Well, that was, I mean, I remember this. And so uh, I did a speech, actually not far from Roseburg. And and during the speech, I said, look, um, if I could help five timbermen to be able to buy Christmas gifts for their children next month. This was November back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only requirement was that I have to hook up three spotted owls to a car battery and electrocute them. My only question would be, which side is positive? <laughs> In other words, 
my entire moral system. This is mine, okay? Sure. I'm not forcing it on anybody else. It happens to be the moral system that built the United States of America. It happens to be the moral system that built Western civilization. But in this moral system, animals are subservient to people. It doesn't mean we can be cruel to animals, but it does mean that we can slaughter animals to eat meat or to make leather shoes or leather belts. And it even means that if necessary, we can slaughter animals uh, if in the process of doing so, we create a medicine that keeps young children alive, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, so whether or not you think that it is permissible to chop down trees or, you know, whether it's moral or it's immoral, depends very much on the moral system to which you adhere. Now, there may be moral systems that say that if you and I go into Death Valley, California, and I bring along a Yeti cooler filled with cooled beer, and you bring a six-ounce six water bottle tucked into your belt, there may be moral systems that say, well, yeah, even though if we split up the beer, we'll both die, and if I keep the beer, then I'll, die, I, I'll survive and you won't, there may be moral systems that say, well, you know what, it's better that they both die. There may well be moral systems like that. I don't know. But I do know that in the moral system based on Western civilization's Judeo-Christian biblical tradition, uh, it is very clear that uh, he who brings the water should survive the guy who took the preparatory steps. And how does that sound? That yeah, I, it's it sounds like you. First off, it was not a trick question, but I love the way you unpacked the presupposition of the question because you're absolutely correct. It's what struck me in the book was just the idea that so many people they immediately jump to their personal moral code and they say, "Well, uh, I should, you know, I guess we'll, I'll just share and we'll both not make it." And the yeah. the simplest was well. You know, you share out of your abundance to help somebody else survive, but there's no moral victory in having both of you die, right? Which was around, but it's all based on that that morality that needs to be predefined. So, you know, I would suggest that uh, in typical fashion, you hit it out of the park. <laughs> well, I mean, look, um, you know, to be honest, um, you're 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 so far you're loving easy ones. Okay, well, we can get to the hard ones, or at least I, you know, and maybe what I should do is you, maybe I should let you set up the hard ones because I think no, you've no, done no, plenty no, no. of thinking like through. No, 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 Don't worry about it. Yeah, this one's this one was fun simply because that was the first thing in the book that really struck me. Uh, well, that's not the first thing. That was that was something that struck me that was really tangible that I could share with other people because oftentimes we have some real cultural hangups in how whether or not. Uh, wealth is inherently evil or good or otherwise and there's some there's some other stuff I'd love to unpack on that one I didn't prep you for this but we have to take through this program three evil profit breaks and we're up on our first deadline so we got to grab I'm this all, one I'm all for it Go All for right it. so if you'll hang tough we will be right back so for all of you listening we've got Doc, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin joining us and we'll be right back this is True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN
All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Just a reminder, if you are catching up, it'll be podcasted tomorrow. You can go to littlejohnfs.com and catch the program. We have a very special guest joining us today. Rabbi Daniel Lappin is joining us. And uh, Rabbi, again, I thank you for taking some time to share with our listeners today. Oh, it's a great pleasure, David. And I I love the West Coast and... Uh, and I've, I've had a long, long, long time association with the state of Oregon. So uh, always, always happy to be with your listeners there. Well, we're, we're delighted to have you. Now, as I was doing my homework, I understand, are you, do you still sail a fair amount? Or is that uh, more of a history now? Oh, Lordy, no, no, no. That's, uh, that's central to my existence. That's what it sounded like. And, you know, so you're very familiar. You did a lot of sailing around the San Juans, as I understand. Um, actually, all the way up through British Columbia, and uh, also the entire coast between Los Angeles and uh, and uh, Puget Sound, the Straits of Juan de Fuca. So, I have been up the Oregon coast several times. Well, we'll you'll, we're, we welcome you back any time, of course. Uh, Thank you. So, you now I don't want to give you all softballs today. Uh, we no, were no, talking earlier, fine. right? Uh, well, that I just I feel like I've got this incredible opportunity here. You, uh, and incidentally, during the break, received a few texts. One of which was from uh, Aaron Walker, who said to say hi. So there you go. Oh, wonderful! Oh, terrific! Thank you, Aaron. Absolutely. So here's the question: You've written several books now. I'm curious: is is do, does one of them stand out as a favorite? Um, you know, you're supposed to love all your children equally, right? Sure. But it doesn't mean you like them all exactly the same all the time. True story. Um, so, um, you know, I mean, I no, I, I would have to say there's, uh, um, you know, each one um, goes through a, a gestation process and a birthing process, and just like a kid conceiving of the book is actually a lot of fun, quite pleasurable. But actually delivering it to the publisher is extremely painful. It it does seem, I have to say that it's it's a significant volume of work. It, it's not a, a small book, the <laughs> yeah. first one. And, and so there are several here. How long of a commitment was involved to produce this? I mean, obviously, there's a lifetime of learning and wisdom that's gone into this, but how long when you decided that you were going to commit this to the writing process to get it completed? Um, I'm not trying to be a wise guy here, but there's an old joke about uh, uh, the plumber who, after he solved a, uh, a big problem in this lady's mansion's bathroom, uh, he presented his bill, and she raised her eyebrows and looked at him, and she said, uh, how can you possibly charge me so much money? And it's and, because there's a lifetime of experience in there. <laughs> and he's, she said, she said you know, all you took was an hour to fix it. He says, yes, um, a quarter of the fee was for the hour's time fixing it, and three quarters of it were for the 30 years of learning how to fix it. Absolutely. So... Um, it didn't take that long to actually write. It took, I don't know, maybe four or five months um, to write, and that's typically what a book takes me. But um, that's that's because um, 
I've got quite a lot of years behind in terms of lecturing and speaking and uh, and doing programs and courses and and a lot of research and study. So it, it doesn't take that long in terms of writing, but that that doesn't mean that I could write a book on gardening as quickly as that. Sure, sure, and that makes perfect sense. Uh, assembly of content when you've got such a rich background in it. It's so. How do you decide what doesn't make the book? Um, well, um, that's a very good question because the, the, there actually is, is a whole lot of stuff that didn't make it into the book. Not because I didn't want to put it in, but because the publisher said it's already too long and uh, we have to cut it down. And so there's a lot of stuff that was kept out. And so uh, that stuff, for instance, a lot of that... I make available through a 10-part audio program. It's a 10-hour audio course on my website called the Financial Prosperity Collection, where I just do it in front of a camera and uh, and uh, and lay it out for folks that way. Gotcha. Are you still? I mean, you are still a pretty prolific speaker, as I understand too. I mean, we're you've got podcasts oh, all over I, the I place. I love doing and... live live events. Yeah, I just just came back from. Florida, where I had the pleasure of a 5,000-person audience in Jacksonville. It was great. Yeah. See, this is kind of my point to our listeners here is this is kind of a big deal. <laughs> so I, I'm still honored that you'll take the time on our little AM station, but uh, we're going to make sure that we push it out there into the internet and uh, share it with as many people as possible. So as, as I think about questions that I would like to ask you as a financial professional, Right. These are things that uh, one of the questions is when you look at people and the pathway to creating wealth, we seem to have some really interesting cultural messages right now. And there seems to be almost a theme of class warfare going on around prosperity. And I'm not I'm trying to frame this in the right question. Here's what's motivating it. Uh, one of them was there was a, a recent uh, article that I read talking about a billionaire's tax, as an example. And one of the reasons it was relevant is because it's being championed by Ron Wyden, who's one of the senators from the state of Oregon. Yes. Right? Yes, I have. I've known Mr. Wyden for many, many years. Gotcha. And and I'm not trying to demonize Mr. Wyden in any way. I, I think oftentimes there's some some decent intent mixed with some partisanship mixed with a bunch of other variables that I don't even know about or understand that brings about something yeah, but like look, this. It's politically popular. That's all there is to it. It's the same reason that rent control is very often a popular uh, political program because there's more people who are renters than who own buildings. And in the same way here, there are, are far more people who are not billionaires than who are billionaires. And because um, the politics of envy have crept into our culture, so is that when, you know, it's the German word schadenfreude, when something bad happens to somebody we uh, envy, it's all good, you know, it's good news. So, uh, you know, Senator Wyden and many of his colleagues know that all they have to talk about is a tax on the rich or on the super rich. And everybody says, yeah, 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 let's do that. And they're too short-sighted and too inexperienced to know that that's for this year. Next year, they'll be defined as the new rich. Sure. Well, that was uh, my takeaway here is, you know, we're discussing a tax on unrealized gains. And I thought, 
oh my goodness, this is not just a ta- uh, tax any longer, but this is, in a sense, a nationalization, you know, so forced divesting. Yes, that's a good point. It's, it's punitive. Uh, it really is. It's, I mean, it's, it's uh, call it tyranny, and I don't think you'd be far off the mark because... Well, I, I agree. I mean, I, I mean, ultimately, going for people's money, you know, beyond beyond what is a level of taxation that I think sort of most of us agree uh, falls within the basic requirements of what we expect government to deliver. But as that list of deliverables keeps on growing, um, you know, people, people don't realize that you can't have freedom um, and equality at the same time. You've got to kind of make your decision. And uh, if, if you just, or freedom and security even, if you decide that uh, your security lies with the government and not with your own ingenuity and efforts and independence, well, then you're going to go for that. And therein lies the path to slavery, ultimately. Ooh, and you really nailed it on that one. Uh, so I love that you didn't shy away from it at all, because I think you're absolutely right. It's it, it's it, A lot of people would say that that's, oh, come on, you're taking that to an extreme. But you didn't say it is slavery. You said it's the path to slavery, just pointing yeah, that oh, absolutely, subtlety yes. out. Because ultimately, uh, if if you don't own anything— Right. I mean, I'm just trying to, to, to unravel the sort of the logical flow of the argument here. Right. But if, if there's no ownership and the government owns everything, but then how do how does anything ha- happen economically? And it has to be compelled at some point. And well, that's this is fundamentally the uh, the the conflict between uh, the American system as the founders envisaged it and socialism that uh, their descendants today in the United States of America are promoting. And the difference is whether or not uh, ownership is a real and desirable and moral end for human beings. And, uh, and I can readily understand those who claim it isn't because, generally speaking, um, those who uh, tend towards the... Uh, the side of socialism are for the most part people who have rejected a Western Bible-based vision of reality. And if that's the case, then they have answered a very basic question in a certain way. What's the basic question? How did human beings arrive on this planet? I mean, it sounds like a, you know, a question from astrophysics or from... Sure. Uh, Sure. Um, cosmic biology or anything, but it really isn't. It's a very simple question because there really are only two choices. And one of them says, by a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, primitive protoplasm turned into ballerinas and bookkeepers. And the other one says uh, that there's something called God who created human beings in his image and, and put them on this little speck of dust on the edge of a remote galaxy, virtually invisible from most of the universe. Now, why this is so important is because if indeed we are here just as the result of a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, then we are on a spectrum line that has mosquitoes on it and orangutans and chimpanzees and whales and, uh, and frogs and, you know, we're just along that path. Now, in the natural world, ownership doesn't exist. There's something called a territorial imperative that many animals possess. Mm-hmm. Do you have a dog, David? 
Uh, so we we do have a dog. And if I stepped onto your lawn in the middle of the night, is there a good chance he'd bark? There is. Uh, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> oh, well, I'm I'm happy to be warned. Yeah, yeah I like, well, I, I like mean that it works. For, it works and for he, us. I mean, he's not very dangerous. Just so you're aware, you'd probably be like, "Oh, that's that's a lot bigger bark than the animal giving it." I'm surprised. Okay, well, I'm I'm just I'm just sort of checking, and in return, I'll let you know that uh, you know if you step onto my lawn in the middle of the night, uh, it's vaguely conceivable I might miss you, but I can assure you, Mrs. Lappin won. She's a crack shot with a three fifty seven. <laughs> Fabulous. I'll be sure so, to ring um, the doorbell instead. <laughs> yeah, if you ring the doorbell and run away, I think she'll still get you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, my point is that when your dog barks, it's not because he thinks he owns the lawn. It's because there's a territorial imperative. He's established in his little doggy head a sort of perimeter that he feels he and you are responsible for. And, and all animals are like that. But the idea of ownership doesn't exist in the natural world. And that's why it is that uh, when the pilgrims in the 17th century uh, tried to buy land from the local indigenous Indians, uh, these people had no idea what they were talking about. It made no sense. Wow, this is a really interesting unpacking. It had not occurred to me along these lines, but uh, I see your point. No, this is, this is really important. So Absolutely. People who, um, who tend towards the socialism side of it also say, well, we are really just a form of sophisticated animal. And since animals don't own anything, we don't think people should own anything either. And there you have the essence of, of uh, the Marxist outlook, uh, the idea of communism, which is that ownership should only be held by the people, by everybody. And uh, it sounds attractive and appealing. It's, you know, the only problem, of course, is that it's never succeeded in delivering anything but mass misery and murder. But, um, but on the other side are, are the group of people, and the founders were one, who said, uh, we're inspired by this uh, monumental and majestic volume called the Bible, which has shaped uh, the Western way of thinking. And we believe that God likes the idea of human ownership. I want to pause for a second. I love this idea of human ownership. I have a really uh, question I want to unpack. I'm going to give you the question, but, but then I'm going to say, say I'm going to warn us we have to go to break. And the question is, who owns the product of their labor? And the answer is obvious, but I think it's important that we understand the question, too. But we got to take this obscene profit break. So if uh, you'll bear with me, everybody, we will be right back on the flip side. But uh, stick around. Uh, we're interviewing with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. This is David Littlejohn, and you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show, where we have special guests joining us today. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, thank you for joining us today. And I asked a question at the break, and you were just on a fantastic roll talking about the concepts of ownership and really some of the, the underpinnings of the concepts of socialism, interestingly enough. Right. And then my question was, who owns the product of the labor? Well, here's the great thing about socialism, 
and that is it is a moral system. And in general, if you pit a moral system against an economic algorithm, the moral system wins. It's the same way as saying if you pit a brave and handsome young crusader against an accountant, the crusader beats the accountant in terms of popularity and enthusiasm and, uh, and, uh, and credibility. Sure. And so um, socialism against capitalism is a stupid contest. It's like pitting a crusader with clear eyes and a bright banner you know, against a tired accountant. Yeah, you although I, some of my favorite system. people are accountants, just saying. <laughs> no, I, I love accountants, and uh, it's in, in the Hebrew language, in the Lord's language, an accountant is seen as uh, almost um, aristocracy. And that, by the way, is going back to the, the children's program of Sesame Street. One of the reasons that the guy who does the counting was called the count is because of this uh, Hebrew concept that counting is, is is a very elevated occupation. Understood, understood. And the reason is because, you know, when, when I see a, a company's financial report that's heavy on page after page after page of pictures and words and only a very few pages of financial statements, um, I run for my life. I like financial reports and, and annual reports of companies that look exactly the opposite. That's you the know, Warren Buffett the, theory, as I recall. He's always wary of the companies the with lots of gla- glossy brochures for the annual report. You know, I don't need that. You show me the numbers, I'll tell you the story. Very good. So we're so speak- in, speaking in to sense, socialism, and you're saying this is uh, the example of uh, socialism, in this case, is the, uh, the champion, whereas the, uh, the, 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 the CPA is the, um, or the accountant, you said, more specifically, is is capitalism in in your analogy that's right you can't you can't put those two systems together because socialism contains within it an entire um, overarching matrix of morality and part of that is that we are all animals and obviously it goes without saying that if we're all animals we do need a farmer or a zookeeper and that's just another word for government and so this is why in the socialist vision People are very small and insignificant. Government's very big and very great. And in the, um, the more traditional model, uh, government is kept as small as possible, and individuals are allowed to grow great. It's, it's a very it's, different viewpoint. I, it really is a different viewpoint. It's interesting. Now, it may simply be because of my my cultural take on things, or maybe it is also just where I sit in the strata and... Uh, currently, as somebody that's a business owner and and what have, but socialism does not natively look as attractive, at, at least in the 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 purest sense of it, where you know everybody chips into the kitty and you'd really it's all you know owned by everybody. Because I guess I've just done too many group projects where there's social loafers and I don't trust them. Well, I mean, it's even better than that. Socialism is a moral system. And this comes back to the answer of your original question. Socialism is a moral system that legitimizes you or me to live on the sweat of other people's work. Socialism is what says it's okay for me not to work and to live 
of money that's taken from you and redistributed to me. That's what President Obama meant when he said, you didn't build this. Don't think that the results of it should be yours because you didn't do it. Yeah, I mean, and it's a heavy topic. So uh, this one, by the way, let me just for fair and full disclosure, because I'm big on that, because I live in a fiduciary landscape, uh, you know, it wasn't somebody that I had voted for. That's not, and I'm not trying to throw rocks at one team or the other when I say this. I remember the context of the the commentary, and I think there was some truth in both that you didn't build that, but the intention of sort of saying you didn't build it on your own because of all of this shared resource. But I'm I'm going to guess that you're going to agree with me and probably expound on the fact that. Well, yes, there is a social reinvestment that we've all agreed to because there is some governance around capitalism. Uh, as much as I'm a purist around capitalism, if you let it kind of go to its purest extreme, it becomes monopolies and it stops being capitalism again. So somewhere there's a trade-off in there to keep natural competition around. Uh, oh, yeah, of course we want to keep natural, natural competition. Absolutely, because that's it to the advantage of the market. Right, right. And I think that's the argument that people most often try to make is that, you know, for example, that wealth keeps getting concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. Uh, I would suggest that the, the natural marketplace actually does that. Uh, interestingly enough, I don't even know if I agree with the statement because so much of the wealth is created first generation. Right. So you think sure. about yeah. Elon Musk or you think about Jeff Bezos, who are the two, you know, the world's richest men right now. And this sort of arms race to have the biggest number behind your net worth, uh, to which most of us sort of shrug our shoulders and go, I don't even know what that means. But the, the question, neither of them inherited significant, any significant wealth. I mean, these are both brand new organizations that were disruptors in their time. And I think like anything else in history, they will rise and fall and other things will take their place. Right. But, you know, when we talk about Elon Musk and, uh, and Bezos and so on, um, you know, there's, there's, I mean, they are both eccentric, unusual, strange people. And um, they're, they're sort of out of the, the, the realm of, uh, of normal day-to-day -day living for, for the likes of me. Um, you know, they're like, uh, they're like movie people, like Iron Man or something, you know. Sure. But... Let's just look at uh, all the millionaires in the United States of America. And I wonder if, if your listeners today have any idea of how many millionaires there are in America. Just to give people an idea, right, there's just over 300 million people in America. Mm -hmm. Do you know that there are over 20 million millionaires? That, does, that statistic doesn't surprise me at all statistically. No, exactly. It shouldn't. And, well, because be I understand that. In other words, um, I I teach how to increase your revenue. You know, when 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 people, uh, something I say all the time is that uh, in 99.76 percent of cases, today's financial stress is the result of mistakes you made yesterday. Agreed. That's no question about it. And Agreed. I I'm, I can go through it with uh, with individuals, and I do. And I say, now, you know, there's, there's several steps in uh, turning your life around. One of them is you've got to get out of debt. Best way to do that is get hold of my friend Dave Ramsey and start his financial peace program, cut up your credit cards, and start working your way through 
but that's not my field. My field is increasing revenue. You've got to do that at the same time as well. And I can definitely, um, I can definitely change the next six months of your life by giving you the program to follow in order to adopt into your life the principles of ancient Jewish wisdom that have made the people of Israel disproportionately successful financially in every time period and in every country. It's not an accident that even in the state of Israel today, five million people are as economically productive as their hundred million neighbors. Yeah, I I will give lots of credit there, by the way. I will go so far as to point something else out to our listeners. If you look at the per capita distribution of Nobel Prizes, more Nobel Prizes coming out of the nation of Israel than uh, everywhere else. Yeah, but with David, look, I mean— I guess there's some politics to that as well these days. I know quite a lot of Nobel Prize winners who short a cash— we're talking about something much more important than winning a Nobel Prize, true, and that is true, getting rid true. of financial stress. Really much more important, right? I agreed. Well, and that's literally why our listeners come to this program, is they're looking and for so that insight. Should. Yeah, exactly right. So my point is, though, that uh, you know, obviously it goes without saying that I cannot tell you that uh, following my program, you're going to become an Elon Musk or or Jeff Bezos or a Bill uh, um, uh, Gates, or, you know, that's not going to happen. But am I going to substantially increase your financial income and your revenue? Absolutely. Just go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and get started and join hundreds of thousands of other people who write and thank me for this change that comes about, right? That's doable the same way look if if i try and dance i look a little bit like a drunk trying to kill cockroaches (laughs) but um now if 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 somebody were to take me in hand and 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 say look you 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 really got to learn to dance they're not going to turn me into michael jackson the late lamented and they're not going to turn me into somebody who can go on to dancing with the stars but will they make me a whole lot better than I am? <laughs> of course. No question about it. Absolutely. It's with, like that with everything. Uh, it, you know, a really good chef is not going to be able to make me a really good top chef, but he'll certainly show me and teach me how to make better omelets than I do. <laughs> and so it's, it's like that with everything. It's pretty straightforward. So that's why I'm much more interested in you know in the 20 million billion excuse me the 20 plus million millionaires in America than I am in the uh, you know dozen billionaires so with with that I have a question for you in in your program do you have any low hanging fruit that you would offer to people that uh, aside from of course and and I'm I'm totally behind this uh, visiting your website and you've obviously got some ad- uh, additional materials that the, the folks can get involved with at rabbidaniellappin.com but do you have any low hanging fruit advice that you would offer for those people that are aspiring millionaires we want to build some millionaires on the program Right, and that's exactly what people should be should be planning on. Uh, so, can we do this? If if the can can we take we have to take our final break, and if we'll do that, we'll come back, and I would love to just let you close out the program and share. 
All right, so let's stick around. We'll be right back. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and uh, I'm along for the ride today. Your host, Dave Littlejohn. You're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey, gang, thanks for tuning in to the True Wealth Radio Show today. I'm your host, Dave Littlejohn. Joining me is special guest, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And, Rabbi, I just wanted to ask you with the, the final segment of our program here, one of your specialties is helping people to increase revenue. And we talked about how to build millionaires. What advice would you offer to our listeners? Well, uh People sometimes say to me, you know, what is the one most important principle or one of the, what's the one most important secret uh, to increasing revenue and making money? And um, the correct answer to that is that the one most important secret is that there is no one most important secret. Um, life, especially economic life, is far too complex to be reduced to, to a single principle or a single slogan. That said, I'm not going to to duck it entirely, and uh, I will leave you and your listeners with at least one thing, which which may sound strange, but um, you know, as you get to know me a little bit and maybe get to work with me, uh, you will discover just how incredibly applicable this is, and how remarkably effective it is in stepping onto the escalator of uh, financial abundance and you know becoming a millionaire plus not a billionaire but a millionaire plus and um, and and here it is look um, the international language um, today is unquestionably English uh, if you fly an airplane whatever airport in the world you fly into when you turn your radio to the tower frequency you will be speaking English no matter what airline, no matter what country. Um, most financial, international financial transactions are cleared in English. Um, it is the, the language of the country that created banking and created the stock market and in which the Industrial Revolution took place and laid the foundations of our modern economy. All of that took place in England. And so what I'm going to, to tell you, David, and to tell your listeners is that you need to increase your fluency in English because every single process of making money, and again, I'm afraid it's very difficult to, to sort of wrap this profound concept into just the uh, you know one or two minutes we have left. Sure. But let me say that... Um, Money is made when one human being does a transaction, a mutually consensual transaction with another human being. And that happens when you can most effectively communicate with that other human being, which is why I want to say that unless you are a swimsuit model, which I'm not, the most effective money-making organ on your body is your mouth, your ability to communicate, to speak. People call it the gift of the gab, but it's not. It's, it's not trite. It is the ability to persuasively present an idea to someone else. Maybe it's a job interview, and the idea you're trying to present is hire me. 
or maybe it's uh, you're working in sales, you're a sales professional, and the idea is uh, here is how my product can improve your life. But in all these cases, and a whole lot more there isn't time to go into, communication is what makes the transaction take place. And um, in on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, in my books and on my uh, uh, on my video program at my website, which is called the Financial Prosperity Collection, I explain specifically how to increase your ability to communicate effectively in the English language. But this is worthwhile, and I'll just tell you one thing right away, which only a small minority of the listeners are going to do, because I know this from my experience, and that is uh, quit spending relaxed leisure time in front of a screen with moving pictures on it. Instead, read a book. And just that simple step of replacing, shall we say, two to three hours of screen time a week, which you know you've got, and replacing that with reading, will it'll be so transformative that friends will say to you that you're sounding different, what's going on. That's how effective that is. So um, that is uh, is perhaps you know I'm breaking one of my rules, which is never to to reduce the complex world of revenue increase into one slogan or one idea. I'll break that rule today, and say uh, if there's one good place to start, it is to increase your ability to communicate in the English language. I love it. And I can't thank you enough for joining us today on the program. Uh, one more time, uh, to to learn more, to check out, and it, it was this wasn't because we're trying to push this. I've read the book, and I think I'm I'm going to be reading the rest of them. But go to rabbidaniellappin.com. Lots of fantastic material there, Rabbi. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. All God right, well, we can hear the music, so uh, we are out of time. But I will just remind all of our listeners, if you are looking for a financial resource and you don't have a trusted uh, professional in your life, you're welcome to give us a call. We're at 541-375-0898. But we are out of time for now. So until next time, thanks for tuning in. This has been David Littlejohn with special guest Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and you've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQED. The program was paid for by Littlejohn Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.